How do you do? The box office pulp board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet. Analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby. With buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Every great wizard in history has started out as nothing more than what we are now, students. If they can do it, why not us? Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp. Your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, murdered magicians. I, I guess technically it's just one on-screen murdered magician, but whatever. The Bob Harry Potter commentary series keeps on keeping on with this new commentary track about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today is my very own secret army of delinquent rule breakers who will probably be beaten to death by centaurs, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I killed Sirius Black. I knew it, you son of a bitch. This was a sting operation. The other ones were just a ruse. Book them, Jamie. The other ones were just a ruse. <laughs> <laughs> All the, the other commentaries were leading up to this to get you to confess to your crimes. The Harry just... Potter films are the beating heart on your floorboards. <laughs> I just want to say, not to get us further off track five seconds into the commentary, but... I love the idea of a wizard murder mystery, and only Detective Gilderoy Lockhart can solve it. <laughs> That's the spin-off video game I want. Don't adapt any of the movies anymore. Just, just make this real. Murder Nintendo. on the Hogwarts Express. Detective Pikachu 2. This time, it's wizard personal. Right. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going down that rabbit hole any further, because I could just spend days there. Thank you. For... <laughs> control this is all going to be about harry potter and the order of the phoenix no more of that wizard detective stuff so in a few seconds here we're going to play the movie we're going to talk over it if you would like to join us we'll have a countdown cue the movie up pop it on listen away or not you do you hey you never Before introduced jamie that. yeah i did i said jamie book him that's not an introduction that's a threat against <laughs> that was me media res he just showed up she was uh, there to do the... doing stuff yeah Jamie was arresting you in the background, and the viewers who I have faith in were paying attention to her actions. What a weird cameo that would be. Maybe shows up just to <laughs> arrest me and then leave in the background, and then you continue. It's we're very really... Hitchcockian, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, we're really just in the wraparound segment. 
This one's all yours, Mike. You just have the entire commentary to you. Hey, from jail. <laughs> the really bad prequel to From Hell. <laughs> so what are we doing? Before we start the commentary proper, I have to introduce the official drink for Order of the Phoenix, which is the Sicily. So you're going to start off with two ounces of really high-proof bourbon, like 100-proof, whatever the highest one you can get your hands on. Go for that. Uh, then you want a quarter ounce of Sinar, or if you can't find that, which I couldn't, Campari will also work. It's just a slightly fruitier taste, which is fine. Campari is available everywhere. Sinar is hard to find. After that, you need a half ounce of chinado, which is also super hard to find. So just any regular vermouth will do. So a half ounce of vermouth. Then you take one dash of Scrappy's chocolate bitters, one dash of uh, Angostura bitters, a pinch of salt, and one cherry for garnish. To make this, it's the simplest thing in the world. You just dump all the ingredients besides the cherry into uh, a shaker with ice, stir it around about 30 times, Strain into a whiskey glass over a large ice cube, garnish with your cherry, and away you go. You have one surprisingly boozy drink. So this one was created by Chasen Huggins, the lead bartender at Mr. Tipple's Recording Studio, which is a wonderful name. I love that. Uh, and it was it was part of Vile Me Please's Miles Davis release for Sorcerer. So in his mind... Precisely speaks on the record's unpredictable brooding, hot, and at times sweet nature. Which, in a nutshell, that's this film, and, I mean, specifically Harry Potter within the film. He's influenced by Voldemort, his school is being co-opted by evil forces, Dumbledore is pushing him out, but we also get bonding time between Harry and his godfather, his admiration for the Order of the Phoenix. There's a mix of different kind of flavors happening here, which is very true of the ingredients I listed above. There's a lot of very kind of distinct flavors happening here, but together they form a better part. Um... Yeah, I also feel like I'm cheating because the album is named Sorcerer, and we're using this for <laughs> a Harry Potter commentary. But whatever. I don't uh, have to say that was beautiful, Cody. <laughs> I'm not done yet, even. I should stop on my head. Uh, but the drink was named after Miles Davis's wife, Cicely Tyson. Uh, so the impact on families, or the lack of love we have, is a central theme in this film. So everything about this choice kind of felt right to me. You know, the family connections, all that. It's a little on the nose, but whatever. So there you have it. Also, this is a sip and drink. So <laughs> you're gonna <laughs> want to go sip slow. and drink. That's one of your city boy sip and drinks, is it? <laughs> I mean, I made a double, and I'm a little afraid of what this is gonna do. Oh, I'm can re- you please get wizard shit faced by the end of the show? <laughs> uh, if I had a couple of these, that would be no problem. Even the cherries I picked were actually rum soaked. I don't know what I was thinking. Everything in here is alcohol, <laughs> except for the salt. <laughs> Everything here is alcohol. The Cody Alf story. <laughs> Guys, I don't even know if we're talking right now. I'm going to be honest. Uh, I'm wizard shit-faced. Who knows? I could be sna- speaking snake. I, on- I almost said snaking speak, and I haven't even started this drink yet. This is going to be a long one, isn't it? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. It's, uh, I, uh, you want to count us down? So I'm going to count to three. After I say three, we are going to press play and see some school marm Nazis or something. That was the alternate title for the movie, actually. A lot of people don't know that. That would have actually had more to do with the content in the film. Harry <laughs> Potter and the School Marm Nazis by J.K. Rowling. One, two, three.
time for an even more fucked up WB logo. Yes. I do love how just satanic the WB logo is by the end of these films. <laughs> when they put horns on it in flames, I'm like, oh, this is a little metal, but... It's preparing you for the horror of the DC movies. <laughs> I, I mean, what, after, like, the, the third one, they all kind of turned into horror movies for, like, five minutes at the start, which I do appreciate. Wizard horror is the best. Wizard horror. Wizard oh, that's, horror. That's, that's the greatest genre. Particularly uh, on the side of vans. <laughs> Is that just the plot of the dungeon master? <laughs> I reject your reality and substitute my own. All right. So the like the the dwellings of the Dursley is already spooky enough, and now we get apparently like the playground for the children of the corn. The most depressing playground in the world. <laughs> There's like one swing. Apparently, three people on bicycles, even though it's a thousand degrees outside. Those people Seriously, are gonna die. We fucking we've seen this park before, and it wasn't this depressing. <laughs> That's true. You don't even recognize it. I guess because like they've killed off all the grass and everything for the heat wave. But I would not want to play there. I just feel like I would sit down and just start weeping uncontrollably as I remembered all the bad things I've done in my life. Also, these guys would be there. Can I say how much I love tracksuit Dracula Dursley? <laughs> Fucking him becoming a lad is just so it's perfection. It's such a weird trajectory. In the first film, I mean he's he's kind of like the, the schoolboy dandy and now it's this like tracksuits and chains. It's <laughs> he goes from being like out of a 50s child book to oh, he's very modern and also horrible. And what's weird to think is, as far as the movies are concerned, he still has a tail. <laughs> also, this is the weirdest bullying ever. You know your mom died, right? That'll get him. He's not very good at time. it. To be fair, Harry has uncontrolled rage issues, so that's all he's got to say. Harry is so goddamn angry in this movie. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Super it's honestly the most interesting thing about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Also, I feel like this Harry is just Potter. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I feel like this is just England. Like, this is how badly it rains. <laughs> Storm oh. now, everyone run. I thought you were just going to say, this is what again. happens in England. Um, Dementors just show up sometimes. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> but you were saying, good. Oh, just the fun part about Harry Potter as a protagonist is we've already latched onto him for several movies. They're, they can't lose us. Like, anything Harry does in this movie, we're going to be like, well, I guess I have to sit around for the next five movies to figure out where it leads to. So they can do stuff like just make him uh, just fucking angry and annoying for the entire film, and we're just going to roll with it. They've already latched us on to him. It's great. They have so much freedom to do different things. Or just give him weird haircuts each time. Nobody can ever <sighs> accuse Harry of being a stagnant protagonist. Oh, yeah, that's what always baffled me so much whenever, like, I would see that label thrown around occasionally. It's like, no, nah, there's a new status quo with Harry every book and every movie. They do a, a remarkable job of that. Which is, I mean, if you look at most franchises, the character is already staying it by the second film. So that's great that they managed to get eight movies out of this without Harry feeling boring. Yeah, I, I mean, of all the Harry Potter movies, is definitely the one I have the most issues with, but... 
I do think it does a remarkable job of building on the the arc of Harry's anger that's been building since Prisoner of Azkaban, and finally seeing us really, like, finally seeing Harry really do something with it whenever he decides to teach the other kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, how long do you think it takes for a soul to regenerate? Or does a soul regenerate? Like, does I, Harry just have a little bit less soul than he did before? Is Dudley basically just a drone at this point for the rest of his days? I think it's preacher logic. Like, you just, you're just you just lacking a 10% of a soul forever. Interesting. I mean, in, in 3, they show there's actually, like, a nugget of soul that comes out when they suck hard enough. So I don't know if the rest is, like, some sort of protective fluid or it's just pre-soul. I have a lot of questions about what soul. Dementors are doing. J.K. Rowling, if you want to hit me up, I've got a lot of questions about what Dementors are doing when they're sucking. Dementors are doing when they're sucking. They're living their best life is what they're doing. Uh, the amount of fan fiction I've read. Also, I, I'm fascinated by this tandem carrying that go, that's going on here. This guy looks like Dudley is in the process of throttling him, but benevolently. <laughs> like, I can't tell who is dominant there. The classic Dudley dance move. It's going to sweep the nation. Okay, that is a woman who desperately needs a nice cooling bath in a swing pool full of mud. <laughs> so, I think... Um... Well, Jamie touched upon this um, when she said that this is the one uh, there is the most issues with. Um, and yeah, it's it's like uh, rewatching this again. It's the one I never retain memory of. Yeah. Oh yeah. No matter how many times I see it, I cannot tell you anything that happens except the third act. Well, it's it's strange too because this is, I believe, the longest book in the series and the shortest movie. It's a, I think, order. I think a Chamber of Secrets is slightly longer by a couple, or slightly shorter by a couple of minutes, but it feels the shortest. Chamber, I thought was one of the longer ones. Uh, Chamber's pretty long. It's it's pretty up there. Um, yeah. This is a film. A uh, Harry Potter film not touched by Steve Clovis. Yeah. And it shows. Yeah, he when I read that and researched, and... like, yeah. Before uh, we get away from the Dursleys, I just want to step back and say what a wonderful phrase gone yumpy is. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's actually said that in real life in England gone or yumpy. at least in the last 40 years, but <laughs> wonderful. It's like something from a Roll Doll book. But yeah, that made all the sense in the world whenever I read that. It's like, it's like when you find out that Ernest Goes to Jail is the only Ernest movie not made by the Ernest people. It's <laughs> like, oh, that's that's why the everything. <laughs> this, and you just gestured that one fact. So if I can keep being annoyingly pedantic about how the wizard world doesn't work. Also, extensive flashbacks. Uh, flashbacks. 
if if in the wizard world you can be expelled for using magic illegally out of class, doesn't that seem like a bad way to control magic use? Like you're you're done with magic now officially, but just you're off the books now. We're not going to teach you how to do any of this. So, now so you're going to be unlicensed. less safe. Yeah. I, I feel like I'm making like a weird NRA spokespoint now. Like, no, everyone should have magic at all times. There should be no regulation on magic. That, actually, there is amazing correlation there. It never occurred to me. <laughs> Bob gets political. Also, I was way off. Yeah, this is the shortest movie by a long shot. Uh, IMDB trivia led me astray once again. Ooh, those monsters. I mean, the trivia can be submitted by anyone, so... So, the, the writer of this particular movie was, um, was it Michael Goldenberg? Yeah, Michael Goldenberg. Uh, so it's in my notes, but it's at the bottom of my notes, so don't make me scroll. I, you know, I don't want to shit on somebody, especially when, you know, all, some of these projects had, you know, multiple... He's coming into hands. the project late to, uh, you know, there's yeah, already established the project he was part of. Yeah. Um, and again, contact. it's the longest book, so there, there's so much stuff that you have to sort through. Like, how can you cram this into a movie that's not five hours long? Uh, he he wrote Contact, the 2003 Peter Pan film, um, which you know that's not shameful or anything. Uh, I actually kind of like the Peter Pan movie, but. Yeah, that does explain a lot. He was one of many writers on Green Lantern. Um, that's not really anybody's fault. It's hard to say. Um, and then hasn't written anything since Green Lantern, but does have a movie. He has a writer credit on one of a few, uh, Artemis Fowl. So, hmm. yeah, uh... Or the Phoenix, Green Lantern, and before, uh, or the Phoenix, Peter Pan. Now, I think what's interesting about that, and I don't mean to, you know, examine this dude's um, style too closely, but it is interesting that all these films have one major thing in common, which is they're kind of, even when they're not bad, because Order of the Phoenix is not bad, um, but it shares one thing in common with a lot of those, which is they're kind of nothing. Yeah, even as somebody who likes Peter Pan, that is a forgettable goddamn movie. Yeah, yeah. I think Peter Pan's pretty pretty enjoyable, pretty decent, pretty good, but it's... Oh yeah, I just watched a Peter Pan movie. Like, it's it kind of washes over you, and Order of the Phoenix feels like it's this scene, and then the third act... And it's just, it's all what would be C-plot in a Clovis-written film. Yeah, I remember whenever I first saw this movie, my thoughts as the credits rolled were, I feel like I just watched a scene, like an entire movie made out of deleted scenes from everyone else's Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Because <laughs> it feels like karaoke to me. It feels like... A lot of, like, it feels like Chuffra, like Chuffa, like somebody Ch trying yeah. to sound like somebody else's script and just, it, well, the best meta, like the best analogy I can think of is the Robert Rodriguez 
trick for screenwriting, which is you don't know your character, so just put them in a restaurant and have them talk for a little while. And you don't have to use any of that. Just use it to figure out who those characters are. That's what this movie feels like as a movie. Yeah. Just somebody trying to figure out these characters by having them do some stuff. And someone who just didn't hadn't broken how to adapt these things. You know, Clovis worked many years figuring this stuff out. So to kind of throw somebody in the deep end, they're already at such a huge disadvantage. And this movie is adapted incorrectly. Yeah. Um, There's a lot of stuff that I don't think Clovis would... Yeah. Um, There's a lot of stuff I don't think Clovis would have included, like... I don't think Clovis would have included everybody at Hogwarts being against Harry and thinking that he's a liar because it just yeah. wastes a lot of fucking time and I doesn't amount to anything. Part of the movie. Yeah, I just rewatched this the other day and I already forgot that was part of this film. <laughs> yeah, then watching in, this... in other spots, they wanted to get rid of Creature, but J.K. Rowling forced them to put him back in because he becomes more important later down the line. So, that's... but he's tacked off the last minute, so he's just nothing. Like, well, why so is strange. Tonks in this movie? And think... it's treated like she, she's going to do something. Why is yeah. this movie well, called I mean, The Order we were, of the Phoenix? While we were talking, we basically missed the entire order. They show up again <laughs> at the end, but we don't really get to see them do anything particularly important. Because it's funny. Like, you can say that of the book as well, that The Order of the Phoenix are short-served, but you at least see the Order of the Phoenix and get to know them. To put this into perspective, they don't get to Hogwarts until the end of the first act of the book. Oh, yeah. There's a gigantic chunk of this movie that's dedicated to seeing outside of Hogwarts, which I think was intentional because the scope of the movies is going to be expanding from this point, so they can't limit themselves just to what's happening in the school. They have to leave that formula behind. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, we're already like 200 pages into the book right now. It's like Harry and Ron and Hermione, they're the ones who set up the Order's base. Like, they pretty much work for the Order of the Phoenix for a while. Like, there's a whole X-Men chapter of the Harry Potter books that, if you only watch the movies, you just don't know about. That's kind of depressing, because that's so cool. And then there's, like, stuff like this bit, which, like, yeah, it's whimsical and fun, but what does this scene do? Reminds us that Crookshanks is still in the picture. <laughs> the most important side character. So Crookshanks can then disappear for the rest of the film. and Franchise. Yeah. It, it's just... like it, it, it felt like the film tried to um, switch the thematics of even it being called Order of the Phoenix to just, uh, Harry's essentially training a new Order of the Phoenix, so... That's how we're getting away with it being called that when the Order of the Phoenix is not in the film at all. Which always puzzled me, because if you're making changes, why not just have Harry call the team the Order of the Phoenix instead of Dumbledore's army? Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Well, this is kind of the breaking point, I think, when it comes to adapting the series. They take a lot more liberties as the series goes on from here. So, yeah, why not? It's I don't think it's a line in the sand. I'm sure fans would have been upset, but they probably would have rolled with it eventually but we, we really focus on the screenwriting here but that does a disservice of saying there is one variable that changed so we can pinpoint what kind of went wrong not really the case because we have a change of director we have david yates stepping up uh 
who will you know just kind of control the franchise from this point forward uh cinematographer is different this time i'm going to butcher this name but uh slawomir Idzak? Idzak? boy some polish people are going to be mad at me uh and then we've got nicholas hooper doing the score so a lot of the big things that are in your face about this movie are different very different this time and to come into a franchise that's been rolling along at the midway point that's got to be hard and i can understand why it doesn't necessarily take off as smoothly as every other harry potter has yeah definitely gives you that ersatz taste in your mouth that you can't quite shake yeah and there's some issues with tone here i think as well which there's some kind of whiplash going on you get the spooky opening there's that comedy scene with the Dursleys. Uh, there's the the kind of awe-inspiring magical bit with the broom riding through uh, London. And now this kind of spooky grim stuff where Harry's finding out about a force of wizards that are assembling to oppose darkness. In a very short amount of time, we've kind of bounced all over the place. Even a second ago, we had the Crookshank scene. So it's difficult, I think, for viewers because they're trying to cover a lot of ground and show a lot of faces. Yeah. And you just have David Yates just having a very like he, David Yates I feel came in at the worst possible moment for David Yates to come in because this is the moment you get such a like this is where you essentially enter the final act tonally of this series where it really would have benefited to have as much continuity as possible. And with the big changer where you lose that. So uh, it, it comes across worse than it could have if Yates had picked up at like at Goblet of Fire or even at Half-Blood Prince. Yeah. He, he for, for this film especially, he seems to be kind of just pulling from um, an amalgam of different looks and tones of the previous film like this is uh kind of azkaban this is a little bit of chamber here and there um uh, a lot of goblets but they don't like it's not a a poorly directed film or it's not bland looking i find half blood prince far that the blandest film but it just, it all doesn't mesh, because he's just sort of throwing it out there. And I don't really blame him. He, he comes from, you know, he pretty much comes from TV. Um, He's popping in this, uh, this thing where, you know, you can't really be changing, uh, be changing the wheel any. But uh, it's also kind of expected at this point, the films are going to start looking different as they go. Because that's been established. Um, it was kind of a, I think, a disservice to him that he became the Potter director from this point on. Because I think if yeah. he just came on for the last two, which I think was his finest directing work on the series, uh, I, I think he would be remembered more fondly as a director. Because despite doing the most films, no one really... And he still technically does them. Um, no one really remember, remember, yeah, remembers him that well. And um, and he definitely is a director who struggles with tone. I think Fantastic Beasts 
you know, writing aside also kind of proves that uh, the tone is usually very flat and lifeless. And even here, nothing, nothing gels together. So the tone just lays there, much like the film. <laughs> <laughs> On a more positive note, I'm absolutely in love with the design of the Ministry of Magic. Oh, this yeah. Black polished everything with the kind of lighter boundaries between all the bricks to kind of give it a bit of a glow, the long hallways, uh, the, the big entryway with the giant golden statues. It's a very cool design. It's, it's very different from everything else we've seen in the series and we'll see for the rest of the series. It stands out so much. Uh, and it also is a great thing because later on in the series, once darkness is taken over, we get to see all the changes that are made to the ministry. So by making such a visually iconic spot, you can really pick up on all those differences. Yeah, so something I really appreciate about the design is it comes across as so ambiguous. Like even watching it now, I can't decide, is this really spooky or do I really want to work here? <laughs> <laughs> I love how the design of this place, like this courtroom, you know, the hallway, it's all pulled from, it looks like something that you would visit on Avalon, or you would see in Excalibur, or some such shit. Yeah. Like, it's so, it's the most fantasy-based location design-wise in such an epic way that I think that's what sets it apart. Everything else, even Hogwarts, is fantasy-based, but... Uh, it's grounded in a way where at least it feels like it would actually exist and you haven't, you know, entered, you haven't actually entered a realm where dragons exist until dragons actually show up here. Yeah, fuck it. Merlin. <laughs> also, I don't know if this is me uh, connecting things where connections are not meant, but am I the only one who gets a super Wizard of Oz feel from... The framing of Fudge in this scene with the roaring fire behind him. Yeah, there's definitely something that's intentional there about, you know, you're, it's, invo it's invoking something. Fudge is a dick? No, that he is. His name's Fudge, also, too, which is, you know. Also, we missed it, but I think some of the best acting... Uh, Michael Gambon gives in this entire series is when he reads his name out loud. <laughs> the fact that he gives a different delivery from every name and just gives a little bit of twist to Brian. <laughs> <laughs> like he knows that it's silly that his middle name is Brian. <laughs> it's just a shame that he gave away all of his names to the demons hanging around the ministry. They all have power over him. <laughs> also I didn't notice until somebody else pointed out to me in the movie it's never actually explained what the Dementors are doing when they attack Harry nope. trying to murder him never once you like have in to the infer book, it in the book it's uh it's just her. Like, it's it's the simplest explanation in the world. No, Umbridge just did it because she doesn't like Harry. Yeah, you have it's... to infer that information in the actual film, and it's not a huge stretch 
it's only you can only infer it because Umbridge is the villain of the movie, so obviously she probably has something to do with that. But other than that, the plot is just dropped after this scene and never comes back up again. And it's once again because it's not connected back in a more direct way. It's just something else that's just nothing. Yeah, that was something that was very uh, surprising to me whenever I eventually read the book. Is Umbridge is much more clearly a capital V villain in that. Like in the movie as it stands, she's just a sadistic bureaucrat who has a bit of a full heel turn at the very end. But in the book, it's made very clear. No, she is a borderline death eater and she is responsible for all kinds of shit behind the scenes. Which is one of those things I think I I kind of understand where they were coming from and toning that down because it makes Umbridge kind of a different type of villain. But it also leaves you with a movie that feels, again, very disconnected. Yeah. And it just kind of, it makes Umbridge just feel like a comedy foil for, for the entirety of the movie, pretty much, rather than the actual villain. Even if you remove the Death Eater from Umbridge, which is, you know, like you said, is is understandable. We, we We've seen it. We literally just had a film where a Death Eater was secretly at Hogwarts doing stuff. We've seen that countless times over and over again. So, okay, make it different. But still connect back to the thing that sets all these events in motion. Also, God damn it, serious. <laughs> so damn it, Gary Oldman, are you drunk again? <laughs> Where did you get those clothes from, man? It just looks like Sirius is hitting Harry up for drug money, doesn't he? He really does. Especially the fact that he's nude underneath that coat. I mean, they and didn't actually have to do that. They already established with McGonagall transforming uh, in the first movie. She just goes, comes back with all of her clothes on. He just wanted to wear that jacket and no shirt. Also, I never noted, noticed Mad-Eye as the lookout, just looking over his shoulder to see if their business is done. Ah. <laughs> Hi, George Shadows. And honestly, can we, like, I don't mean to keep bringing up like any kind of negative thing, but can we talk about even Mad-Eye first showing up in this film? Technically hey, it's the me. Yeah, technically the first time we've seen Mad-Eye ever. We saw him really. make it the bottom of a tunnel. True. <laughs> but he's introduced like, you know, that reveal in the last movie didn't happen and like, oh, this character's back. David Tennant is such a good actor. When he is playing Mad-Eye, he nailed it. Mad-Eye in that situation would have done exactly the same thing. <laughs> I mean, that is true. Cannot... <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good point. But, uh, it, yeah, it's kind of like if on The Flash you just never met Harrison Wells. Yeah. It's, kind of, okay. it's a bit weird. Also, we're getting one of the funniest shots ever coming up. To break into this, this is... A big departure for the Harry Potter series because it toys with our objective understanding of what's going on. All of a sudden, Harry's seeing Voldemort around, but it's not established as actually magic. He wakes up here, which makes you wonder even more, is this just a bad dream of Harry's or was that a continuation? Did he actually think he saw him there before boarding the train? Plus, that was the funniest goddamn trailer in the world. When it came out, they showed Voldemort in the suit <laughs> and he just goes, you will lose. 
everything. I used to say that to my friends like every goddamn day. I would open the fridge up and I wouldn't be able to find my ham. So I'd just be like, Eric Hanley, you will lose everything. It's just a little threat you can always throw out. Everything Voldemort says in this movie is the meme. He's just a walking friggin' meme. Also, when I saw this movie, I was so disappointed Voldemort was not an 80s businessman. Throughout. Oh, only I thought that was just what deals. Voldemort's look was going to be. That's how he gets his unicorn blood. He's he's trading it on the wizard stocks. And what's funny is technically Voldemort does own the police. <laughs> I'll call the police, Voldemort. I own the police, Potter. <laughs> <laughs> We it would be a shame if something happened to that pretty girlfriend of yours. It's me, a magic ninja. Considering the way the film series treats bureaucracy, it, it almost makes sense that Voldemort would have just turned into an 80s villain all around. Like I think those would have meshed pretty goddamn well. Can I just say, I'm fascinated that the two probably biggest film franchises in cinema history. I don't know if anybody wants to argue with me, but Star Wars and Harry Potter. That's, and that's fair. One big thing they have in common are their utter, unending hatred and deconstruction of bureaucracy. <laughs> that's the real enemy, Mike. It's so interesting to me. I feel like that's something that's just inherently woven into adventure fiction, though. What do bureaucrats do? They make the fun not happen. Yeah. <laughs> this one gets enough. a fun angle of it, though, because they get really into the press. Even here, we, we have this bit about the quibbler, which everyone regards as just insane conspiracy trash, being the only one to stand up for Harry, which is kind of a flop on, I guess, how I think of the press. Right now, you know, there's attacks on prestigious news sources and the weird things like Breitbart are just being passed around by crazy folks online. Harry Potter is doing like the opposite of what the real world did. <sighs> it's it's always very strange to go back to any time conspiracy culture is reflected in anything pre a couple of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, that was a different world, wasn't it? And it's weird that t that turnaround happened like three or four years ago. It really wasn't that long ago. I mean, this was back all the way in what two thousand seven. It was a different era. Oh god, I was saying that as a joke, and I realized, oh shit, that's like eleven years ago. Oh my god, that was. Actually <laughs> let's not go ago. into how old we are. <laughs> Getting older, Mike. Older by the moment. Oh God, we're all Jack now. So that's a weird Jack shot. That shot bothers the hell out of me. I don't know why. <laughs> There's some unusual stuff happening with the shot choices throughout the movie. Uh, one that really stands out to me is earlier when the Order is flying through uh, the city. It's kind of like a shaky shot, and it's it's weird just the way that all the action is positioned like directly in front of the camera. It's all center-oriented. It just feels very at odds with everything else we've seen from the Harry Potter series so far. 
which makes sense. Yeah. There's a new DP. He's going to do things differently. And we get a lot more of that as the series goes on under David Yates. So it's just kind of, I think, his stylistic favor. Like, that's just what he goes for. It just feels unusual because this is a fairly well-established series, even though we've had a lot of different directors coming with different ideas. I just want to say, can we talk about how fucking pitch-perfect Imelda Stanton is in this movie? She's evil, and I hate her. (laughs) It's weird to think. This was her star-making performance. In retrospect, it's kind of amazing that they got her. Uh, just, Just umbrage, though, to reflect on that character. I love how we have a movie about the return of the most evil wizard ever who's just racist and terrible and a murderer and he's trying to start like a blood war between the different wizard factions. We hate Umbridge more than that guy. (laughs) (laughs) It's because everybody knows a Dolores Umbridge. It's just like The Office. It was one of those, if you had one bullet and Umbridge and Voldemort were in the same room, who would you shoot? And be like, can I line them up? If not, it's Umbridge. I'm going to shoot Umbridge. Voldemort's at least cool and has style. <laughs> He's I a feel snake. Like in mo- <laughs> I feel like there are two characters, like there are no two characters in modern fiction more universally reviled like, to the pit of people's souls than Dolores Umbridge and Joffrey. Yeah. God, uh, those are the two characters in fiction. The two characters in fiction without a single redeeming faculty. I bet somewhere on Reddit there is a subreddit called Umbridge Did Nothing Wrong. (laughs) But there's people who post in there unironically. Posted by friends of Peeves. Oh, we skipped the annual tradition of everyone hating Harry Potter. Oh, darn. Especially Seamus, who's just a piece of shit in these movies. Just a piece of shit. He is. He's just a dick. Uh, but we have Ron actually being a good friend for once, <laughs> and then Harry just treats him like shit. So the one time Ron stands up, he's like, hey, let me be nice. No, shot down. He learned his lesson never again. There really is a lot of, like, this is the everyone shit on Ron. <laughs> Pretty much. I think half of Hermione's lines are just kind of stuff like that, too. Like, Ron, you did something clever. That's amazing for you. This is why he goes uh, Darth briefly on a couple of <laughs> Until occasions. Until he sees that nude version of himself. Back to changes in Harry Potter style, we got that kind of nifty montage. That stuff works for me. That, that last little bit of Voldemort sneaking to Harry's head, I, I like the way yeah. that was all framed. I like uh, the, where... the surreality of it all. Yeah, that's where the design of the ministry fucking pays dividends because it automatically looks it makes anything look surreal and dreamlike. Oh, yeah. You put any evil snake man inside of it and they're gonna look <laughs> ten times snakier. Umbridge. I'm your pink and cats. <laughs> no, I I mean I was... I, it's okay anybody who likes cats. I like cats. I'm curious how you guys feel about this. I'm not saying this as a nig. uh, Because I feel like this, if this is a thing, it was intentional. And it does certainly uh, give the movie a little bit uh, more of a personality. 
Do you feel that this is the most claustrophobic Harry Potter movie? Yes. Uh, I've really gotten that sense. But I haven't been looking for it either, thinking about it, so I don't know if maybe I paid attention. Yes? The it's most weird, claustrophobic, cause... I would say, since Sorcerers. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, well, it's just weird how this is still one of the open Harry Potter movies where we actually see things and not just rooms. Yet anytime we are in a room, it always feels suffocating, which I, I, I get the impression is a, a stylistic choice. I, I think so. Hogwarts is supposed to, you know, be turning on on the kids, essentially. So it, it makes sense. This scene is particularly frustrating to me because I just feel like every time it plays on ABC Family, there's a bunch of libertarian families just standing in a circle screaming, Yes, homeschool your children! Keep the government out of the classroom! In unison. <laughs> and that I don't like that idea at all. I don't know. It's it's such a character of government overreach. It's tough to apply the lessons here to our reality because like, when it comes to education, I, I think... Yes, it's very easy to overregulate, but I also don't want to be like, yeah, sure, schools do whatever you want. I don't care. Well, not to get too political on box office poll, but uh, I feel like there is, there are real life correlations to this, but it's generally stuff like, hey, let's remove slavery from textbooks. Kids don't need to know that. <laughs> yeah, let's let's not let's teach abstinence only sex education. Kids don't need to know that. It's true. I mean, depending on the administration, the direction that students get can be very different. And it's frustrating because I can yo-yo back and forth. So that's maybe fine for four years worth of kids, and then the next four years are screwed. Hey, Jamie. Little, um, little known fact here. What we just saw cost Umbridge a film deal at New Line. And that is, I'm not going to explain that reference. You can go back to an old box office pulp to uh, get details on that one. <laughs> okay, I just want to say, I am in love with the fact that on a day on planet Earth, somebody had to film these motherfucking cats for like 24 hours straight. <laughs> Wasn't it like a three-day the... shoot or something, too? Oh, it was 24 hours straight. I believe they had to work in shifts. And Jesus. I don't know if that's the worst or best day on set you can possibly have. I hope they Just gave it to somebody kittens. with a violent cat allergy. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, if I walked into this office without even knowing Umbridge, I would immediately jump out the window. Just like, nope, time to die. Everything about this makes me feel uncomfortable. Oh, you're on the service of a snake man, obviously. <laughs> Not even that. I'd be like, this is too... I hate everything going on in this room. I was just in a sweet castle, and now I'm in this room, the worst room. The one the one room of the wizard castle that isn't cool. Pretty much. So there's a lot of dark shit that happens in this franchise. This might be one of the darkest things ever. What, Hogwarts just sanctioning corporal punishment? Yeah. <laughs> and Dumbledore doing nothing. Right. <laughs> I, I forget the logic. In the book, there's a reason why Harry doesn't complain to anyone. But the whole time, even while I was reading the book, I'm like, God damn it, Harry, just say something to literally anyone else at the school. 
I think he just gives a line like he doesn't want to give Umbridge the satisfaction, which doesn't really make that much sense, but fair enough. Yeah, okay, whatever. Maybe Harry's into it. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm not mistaken, it's something like uh, if he says something to Dumbledore, Dumbledore will kick him out and then get arrested. Or something along that lines. Okay, Polyjuice Potion. They could just have another teacher start drinking that stuff. Flickwit teaches like one course a year. <laughs> well, he has that choir to worry about. <laughs> they take care of themselves. Well, so- a subplot I do like. Yes. <laughs> I'm this always nice so retreat. happy when the Weasleys do things. Yes. I mean, this it feels out of place considering like the advancing plot and darkness of the rest of the story, but I don't care. I just enjoy all the Weasley moments so much, I'm very happy we get any of them. There being a tonal break is nice. Honestly, I would watch an entire film that's just set in between movies of the Weasleys getting up to mischief. <laughs> Saving the day with Tom Foolery. To go back to a point I was making earlier about uh, the freedom they have to make Harry kind of not a great character all the time, because we're already attached to him. We just spent the entire last movie learning the goddamn point that you need to keep your friends close if you're going to survive. It's like almost the major theme of all the movies. And then in this film, Harry immediately forgets that. And he's like, no, nothing happened. Leave me alone. Stop talking to me. Shut up. Well, Dumbledore gave him the big freeze. <laughs> it's, ni- it's nice that Harry's trajectory as a character isn't a straight line. He can, he can have some pitfalls. He can not learn the lesson <laughs> or take a while for it to sink in and a while not being that neat block of one movie school year. Now, one big um, thing I love about this film is it, it the juxtaposition between Harry's you know anger and it, doing the wrong thing, but being forced into the teacher role and being forced to actually utilize uh, his Harry Potterness to actually be the Jesus kid that he's supposed to be. Uh, you don't you usually just see. The the Jesus kid trope kind of just, you know, it happens, he's awesome, blah, blah, blah. Harry kind of just like, I guess I'm just going to figure this out based on my own common sense, because everyone's looking to me to do this shit. I, I appreciate the growth into the actual hero versus it just, you know, the chosen one thing just being handed to him. Yeah. Yeah, that's why you can't really discount this movie from the canon as like you can kind of sort of do with Half-Blood Prince. This is like, really, this is one of the big character movies for Harry. This is a major turning point in that character arc. Oh, yeah. If only he got all of the angst out of his system here. Also, hey, better matchup than Harry and Jenny. Okay, so you agree. Also, I just want to say the actress who plays Luna is lovely, and it makes me very sad she hasn't really had a career since these movies. Yeah. I would not go so far to say I would ship these two characters. If we want to get into the shipping business, it's never occurred to me that these two would go together. How dare you even imply any of us ship anything? (laughs) 
I'm not saying you do. I don't know. You got defensive. Are you secretly shipping Harry Potter characters, Mike? Who do you have Hagrid with? Dobby. We've covered this. Oh, I don't <laughs> like Dobby. Especially for Hagrid. <laughs> it's all wrong. It doesn't work. Look, there's only one ship I sail, guys, and that's the friendship. Aww. That's what these movies are all about. Oh no, you you made a little paper ship and then dropped it in water and now you're pulling it out and I just made a brief, brief Simpsons reference. Anyway, honestly, sir, when you were fire. saying friendship is actually going to be like an acronym, like that's the only ship I'm into. Fred, Remus, some character with an E for a name. Go on. I don't know enough characters to make friendship work is an orgy. You skipped I. I know. I couldn't think of an I either. I'm like, oh, E will be easier. And then I'm like, no, I don't have an E. Well, see, that's what I love about that meme. The less effort you put into it, the more it embodies the meme. <laughs> Don't fat shame, Ron. He's a growing boy. He needs his energy for his owls. Seems like a waste of toast. No one's eating toast. It's all magic food. I'm pretty sure they're... Con no, they mentioned the house elves cook it. They just, they're, they're teleporting it to the tables? There's a kitchen where they're making all this stuff, I think, and then they're just teleporting it to the tables for students to eat, so they can't actually run out. Oh yeah, I forgot Hogwarts runs on slave labor. Yeah. Like I America. mean, it's slightly less, it's slightly less world-breaking than, like, if they could just conjure food anytime they want it. That'd, that'd be messed up. You mean like uh, Star Trek? Yeah, that's... I mean, that's supposed to be, like, in a perfect future, where for some reason we're still having political squabbles, even though there's, like, no resource scarcity. I forget, Cody, is this the book where Hermione gets really into elf rights, or is that Goblet? Um, I think, I think it's this one, isn't it? Because, like, meeting creatures sets it off in her mind, like, this is something... Oh, uh, yes, yes. Another subplot that would be really useful if they had included Dobby! Uh, no, it's fine. It's okay. Hey, at least we get two scenes of Creature. <laughs> Muttering anti-Semitic things under his breath. Creature's my favorite part of this film. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, from the last few movies, we, we've seen Hogwarts has some pretty crazy unsafe practices, like children being given detention in the Forbidden Forest, the place they're never supposed to go. There's, like, moving staircases that can drop you off at rooms with killer dogs, three-headed dogs. There's a lot of stuff that's messed up about Hogwarts. But they're actually making me side with the school in this case because I, I hate Dolores Umbridge so much. <laughs> you see her doing this reform, and you're like, God damn, the overregulation. How nervous Snape is here amuses the shit out of me. <laughs> Oh, she'll take my potions away. <laughs> That's Time abuse, to... Snape. Yeah, well, he's been doing that for years. No hacky sack. Not even magical hacky sack. Filch's best role. This is the most he's ever gotten to do besides say something like, mm, Oh dear, we are in trouble. And he gets and to do his Filch ever... run. And, yeah, it's delightful. His Three Stooges routine. And how could we have ever forgotten? I'll kill you! 
He's just having a wonderful time. Filch is very morally ambiguous. <laughs> I feel like they just paid him like he he's on set, but he's not being paid. He just enjoys being funny. This always fascinates me. Is his heights offensive? <laughs> Why do I feel like Warwick Davis came up with that joke himself? <laughs> uh, so personal story here. In high school, our Spanish teacher was uh, fired due to being unable to control the class. Like, kids were just destroying desks. One dude actually peed in a trash can in the middle of the, the course. Jesus. She wouldn't let him go to the bathroom, so he just walked over to the trash can by the door and peed in front of everyone. Uh, it was nuts. Like, I was not in this class, but I heard stories. Uh, so they, they fired this woman, and then they, they had a general assembly where they brought the entire school in to shame us. And it feels a lot like this very scene where, like... The teacher was no longer there, but we all saw as she like left crying from the school, and then the principal the next day chewing us out as we all like were awkwardly standing around in a gymnasium. Oh God! As like I've kind of been in that situation before, and there is nothing more humiliating than being chewed out by your superiors because of shit other people are doing. I know you just want to stand up like I have. I haven't peed in any trash cans. Do not blame me. Today. I nothing... German. Yeah, there's nothing more offensive than if you were better at your job, these other people would be better people. <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I, I don't feel like her witch's hat is taking reason. this very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> I heard it. It is funny. Trelawney's the only one allowed to rock the. I mean, not Trelawney, but McGonagall's the only one allowed to rat. Just use her wicked witch to the West Wing uh, <laughs> hat the entire movie. Oh, this was the scene. Um, first time I was watching this that I remember Dumbledore existed. He <laughs> had his whole he, court scene before. He was fine. And he's introduced like he's Shao Kahn or something. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. That is a weird distinction to make, though. You can fire them, you just can't make them leave. Closing time. I guess uh, you can't get any more alcohol, but I can't force you to leave the building. I guess, you know, Dumbledore does live here, so... Yeah, he's the landlord. They could just make another Hagrid's hut. I would fucking love to see Dumbledore with, like, a bottle of whiskey in one hand and a shotgun in the other. Get off from my property! <laughs> I enjoy the idea of there being, like, a misfit island near Hogwarts of just all the teachers that have been fired, but they, like, didn't have the heart to tell them to find new abodes. <laughs> Isn't that the Forbidden Forest, though? I mean, that's pretty, pretty much what Hagrid's yeah. position was in the first movie. <laughs> they bring bringing a bucket of fish heads once a day. Imagine during the during the off off semester, ruminating just just rummaging around Hogwarts is just Dumbledore and Hagrid <laughs> in that gigantic building where I imagine like once a month they pass by each other and are like Hagrid oh. Professor head nod head nod. Okay, once again, I don't mean to be negative. No, go ahead. I was going to say it, too. Uh, what the fuck? 
Well, we had such a cool effect last time, and this one feels like they phoned it in. Why are they going Wizard of Oz with it? Why, why didn't they do the same effect as last time? They figured it out. This That's is so lame. Part. You showed it's, us such a cool thing yeah. and then decide not to do it? Was it just, did they not know how this all of a sudden? Maybe it was more expensive to do it the other way, and they were in a rush, and there were too many other effect shots, and they had to save it all for the last wizard battle? I don't know. Yeah, I definitely do not care for the change in effect here. One, it breaks continuity, whatever. Big time. But two, it's just, it doesn't look as cool. It's very boring. Like, they wanted to ground magic, which is the worst idea. Yeah. It just makes it look like uh, Sirius got really lazy. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't have all the magical ingredients required to cast the spell, so he just kind of half-assed it. That's like making a Skype call, but your connection's really bad. I like Hermione here going, okay, plot needs to happen. <laughs> I know, I'm reading my notes, I'm like, I have no idea what this connects to. I must have like waited ten minutes for something interesting to happen. <laughs> It's a lot of oh, montages. Face. I love that Voldemort face. Yeah, they're very heavy in this film. The passing of time and in this so. one... Yeah, the passing of time in this one throws me off. I mean, that was, sure, a transition to let you know the seasons are going, but... It was a weird transition. Like, the Voldemort face thing was cool. It's just, you don't expect it to immediately then... Okay, we're, that was actually a transition for uh, seasons. Right, you think it's going to be like a Harry Potter nightmare or something, or another vision. But no, it's actually, hey, surprise, Hogsmeade time. It's just funny that it took Harry that long to get his shit together. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of like a season jump because they needed a season jump. It doesn't really make a whole lot of sense from a story perspective. Especially since a big montage is about to happen. Yeah. And we just got through with another big montage. I swear this movie's about one third montages. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, Half Blood Prince is shot like it's a montage when there's not really a lot of montages going on. Very strange to me. Yeah. People are goddamn morbid. Every time someone dies, they need to know how it went down. They want to know the gory details. So I'm not surprised that children be like, you have to tell us what happened to Cedric. Was it cyanide? Did you put a gun to his head? <laughs> well, first, like, let there's... me begin with, that's my boy! And then take <laughs> just, you backwards. Cedric's dad just bursts in and weeping. <laughs> I hope they feel guilty about it. The children at Hogwarts that aren't our main characters are pretty terrible. I don't like pretty much any of them. They're all Dobby. <laughs> well, they made them. They went out of their way to make fire. them. Yes, they made. They, they went out of their way to make them so unlikable at the beginning of the film. Even here, I'm like, oh, now they're crawling to Harry. Well, yeah, every movie is like all of Harry's friends are now like, we don't like you because we heard a thing, and then they change their mind at the end. It makes them all seem very two faced. I cannot like any of these children because they will turn on you in, on a moment's notice. Especially Seamus, who's just a piece of shit. Oh, yeah. Garbage. Garbage also, person. I do want to say, I do really love uh, this scene for, like, this, this, this is a moment I wish more stories like this would have, where characters just tell the main character 
all of the shit we've seen them do. Yeah. <laughs> and they realize, oh, wait, I'm a superhero, aren't I? Because <laughs> <laughs> at, at this point in the series, you do find yourself thinking, Harry should be running this shit. He's done so much more. All the other students are like, I went to class every day. Um, I brewed a potion. Yeah, the school got shut down, so I read comic books. Whereas Harry Potter's out there, like, fighting werewolves in his spare time. We don't get a good idea of what a normal wizard life is, so you kind of <laughs> you kind of black out that Harry's been doing crazy stuff every year on a fairly regular schedule. Yeah. A way to leave a paper trail behind, Harry. Yeah, this is weird. Also, I do not like this... Uh... Ursat's Colin Creevy. That's insane. <laughs> uh, they've turned Hermione into a goddamn criminal. <laughs> this is this is vile. This is this is shame. They should all go to wizard jail for what they've done to this sweet girl. She used to respect rules. Next also, week she'll be stripping. Ugh. Also, it always disappoints me that Hermione saying Voldemort's name out loud is the biggest moment her character has in the book. And since that's a nothing moment in this, Hermione just doesn't have a thing. <laughs> More decrees. I do really like, no. as far as um, Harry's uh, hero journey, it's a little bit different than a lot of um, chosen one tropes. I mean, we still we, we still get there, essentially, with Harry being all too special with, with, uh, in regards to things. But I like how that's where it ends up instead of that's, you know, more or less where it begins. Of uh, more of, like, why he's specifically special in regards to Voldemort, but... I enjoy that his chosen one thing it has more to do, as presented in this film, with responsibility for everyone else. So thrusting him into yeah. this role is, by experience, because you've been forced into this, you now have a responsibility for these other kids as well. Just to back up the idea we had before that Neville really could just lead the series. He's the one to find the magic room. Yes. This is Neville's story. Take the reins, boy. Because Hogwarts is the only thing that loves him. <laughs> I also, forget, I was, to... was the purpose he just needed a room to sit down and cry in? So it's like, here you go, buddy. <laughs> Always. I like how Hogwarts provides Nazis for them. <laughs> oh, God, he's bad at this. Why is Neville so aggressively terrible? Good question. Well, he's he's a potion guy. That's his thing. It does really build Harry up, too. He actually can do that one spell. Although, the big thing here is Harry, yeah, he gets a skill that's actual leadership. So often in, in movies, when they want you to find the leader, it's just the guy who gives a big speech, even if it's not really heartfelt or meaningful. He just The guy who's just things. awesome, so of course he's going to be the leader. Yeah, whereas in this one, Harry is legitimately teaching students and through like these kind of long montages we're we're getting the sense that he is good at this job 
Yeah. He has actual leadership skills, and it's something we should take away from Harry Potter. We should be like him, not because he's really good at shooting magic, but because he has the personal skills to basically be a manager. This is Harry also, discovering why he's Harry Potter. Pretty much. It's kind of like a, almost a second origin. Also, I love sneaky filch. <laughs> <laughs> also, a. I'm in a different movie from everyone else. <laughs> what a glorious sandwich that apparently is. It's all bread oh, for some damn. reason. Um, dis- it like unhinges jaw to get that sucker in. David Bradley. Um, I also really like Radcliffe's pull of dressing like, like Remus. I love that. And time to shit on Ron once more. He's much more lovable in this movie, though, so it feels weird they really pile the shit on him. Yeah. He needed to pay for what he did in Goblet of Fire. <laughs> so look at... Look at Rupert Grant getting randomly, kind of vaguely swole beneath that giant sweater. <laughs> Weird. The wizard workout. I feel like he was going through that thing everyone goes through around that age where we're just like, yeah, I could be jacked. <laughs> Mo- Mom, can you buy me some weights? I want to get jacked this summer. Can I get jacked? Redheads should never be jacked. I think Carrot Top proved that. <laughs> He's too strong. You would just have to fight Carrot Top. There can be only one. God, so sinister. Actually, this scene disproves the idea that he could have been the true lead of Harry Potter, because dude is real bad at spells. Hey, you heard Snape in the first movie. He can brew glory and bottle fame. Voldemort, <laughs> sniff this. Uh, okay. <laughs> oh, I should have wafted. And then he just tips over dead. Hey, I would Cody, see. what? <laughs> Go on. What brought Voldemort back? Alchemy. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah. I would say a lot of hard work and dedication, but tomato, tomato. This might be the longest montage in movie history. It really it's goes. Really long. This is just the second act. That was in my notes. This is a long montage. I think this one montage blows through like 300 pages. It's going through an incredible amount of time, so I guess it's doing the thing. They need like a like a Rocky song to really get us going for this, though. Push it to the limit kind of thing. Yeah, how did the Harry Potter films go an entire franchise without a single original song? Even... Lord of the Rings had those. Uh, they did have the uh, the Weird Sisters, or whatever it was from the last movie. They made like three songs. Like it doesn't count if it's not used in the movie, though. They played like two of the songs. Yeah, but that was a different context. I mean, we're, we're kind of ruining it, but they do use a Nick Cave piece of music that was not made for the movie at all, but that's still got to get them some points. I do. Uh, I have always appreciated that pull. It's a mm. weird choice. I never, at the start of this, would have predicted that Nick Cave would get to be featured prominently in a Harry Potter film. Oh God, well, he's he got a taste wizard. for blood. I thought he's more like 
some form of demon. He's got a red right hand. That doesn't seem wizardly. No, he warns you of the red right hand, Cody. <laughs> He's on your side. <laughs> also, speaking of like changing body types, I love how this is the point where I feel like they all realize that Neville was becoming ridiculously handsome. We have to stop him. <laughs> so they just try to make, like, they try to film him as slobbily as possible, but it <laughs> doesn't quite work. They're doing some Harrison Bergeron kind of stuff, like we have to make him ugly. He's too handsome. Like, can you slouch more? No. Oh, he's Here, like over the pillow. top mm. slouched over. Mm. I feel like we've missed our moment. Uh, I do want to talk about how David Bradley really is just... I, I think he signed up just so he could mug for the camera. And he's been waiting for this movie the entire franchise so he could get these moments. 100%. <laughs> what a job. I would love to do that for the Harry Potter films. We need to just show up, look like you smell bad, have a cat, and then just make funny faces. That's probably like two days worth of work because he's mostly not interacting with anyone besides Umbridge. Yet spent countless months with the cat. <laughs> Bonding. Are you at all fascinated by their conspiracy mirror? <laughs> <laughs> well, Harry has to find out the true identity of Voldemort. This room is, from a design point, kind of fascinating. Because they, they really wanted the room to feel infinite, so they did the mirror design. But that was never the impression I got. It just like feels just like it's one tiny room. <laughs> yeah, with a lot of mirrors. But they went to such extreme lengths to make this work. Like, they, they couldn't let light come in. They had to wear, like, special shoes that wouldn't bounce light around from the way they had everything set up so it looked more natural. There was, like, a lot of technical problems making this room look the way it does. And I kind of look at it and I go, it's not impressive enough to warrant that big of a pain in the ass. It's just a big room. Yeah, it's... Yeah, the, they made the mirrors too dirty and muddy. So they just end up coming across as shiny walls more than anything else. Yeah, I don't. It's it's just a weird choice. And it's not shot correctly for all the mirrors, so it just never has the feeling that it goes on forever. It actually feels smaller than anything else. Harry's eyes shoots open, and he just watches himself make out on forty different versions of himself. <laughs> like he's just seeing forever. all the mirror copies. Yes, infinity make out. Do you think Voldemort's, like, in his head right now going, oh. Yes, yes. Oh, he must use the tongue, Harry. He must be formal. <laughs> what? Ugh. Oh, that's, that's, just... that's a weird way of putting it. It's... Harry describes kissing very badly. So just to go back to something from a minute ago, you think on a wizard conspiracy board, all of the photos are like, well, I certainly didn't do it. <laughs> no, don't attach that screen that string to me. I know I'm innocent. <laughs> they have a wizard photo of uh Oswald and he's just standing on the grassy knoll shrugging like, mm. I could have done it, who knows? I'm I'll... crazy. I believe in conspiracies. I'll never tell. I'm a photograph. <laughs> I love this regally Oswald we've created. Yes. I Perhaps a president I shall slay. <laughs> this is a weird bit of mythology for Harry Potter. I don't like the idea that they could keep murders alive forever because they'd be in the newspapers. That's okay. Hermione thought that joke was hilarious. 
<laughs> yeah, being being a picture person does not seem pleasant, actually. I just want to say, I love how that's the warmest moment in the movie, and it's just a thing that actually happened, and they kept rolling. Yeah. Quick, they're being genuine. Capture it. It, it does seem like Harry's just getting off on this. So I just want to do a... Um, since I only occasionally remember that uh, I should probably do this, I'm going to do a quick time check for uh, everybody l listening at uh, home. You're at... What is that? One... One hour, eight minutes, 17 seconds. That's it. I'm blind as a fucking bat. So this is freaking me out because we saw the Hogsmeade scene. We had that very long montage of training. It's Christmas now. We've only gotten to Christmas. <laughs> it's been a day and a half. It's so strange. Like the, the movie kind of lurches. I, figuring out the time, this freaks me out because it feels like we spend years in certain months and then seconds in other months. Granted, I understand the story can't be spread out perfectly evenly, because that'd be very weird if Harry had an equal amount of adventure each day, but I'm always surprised to realize, like, oh, shit, this is seriously just Christmas we're hitting. We're, we're halfway through the film, almost exactly, and I guess that makes sense. We've hit Christmas. We've hit the mid-year break. Uh, I, I really uh, adore Radcliffe's performance in this scene. It's got the good head bobs and stuff, the twitches. What's yeah, puberty? Some of his best acting. <laughs> Dumbledore is pissed off because he's the only one who's allowed to yell in scenes. Okay, just from Snape's perspective, he walks into a room as a sweaty Harry Potter screams <laughs> at Dumbledore, what's happening to me? Oh, God, another one. I'll, I'll, I'll talk to the boy's parents. <laughs> Again, Albus. It's really weird that we're at the point we are in the movie and this subplot is just starting. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those things where you can kind of get away with starting a subplot like this in the middle of a very long book, but in a movie, you should probably drag that to a little bit earlier. It would have more of an impact if it was early on. I guess I get why they can't necessarily, because Dumbledore's got to give him the cold shoulder for a long time for this to get maximum impact. But because it comes in so late and wraps up after only a couple instances, it never feels like it's a major part of the film. Yeah, this is rolled over so fucking quickly. The thing is, the basic structure of, like, the, the points they go with are for more of a, a care... I love his little uh, techno head bob there. Um, <laughs> are, are for more of a, just a character piece film. One that's not as ruled by plot as the, like, the previous films were. But it's not... It's not pieced together that way. I, I, like, I'm very puzzled. Like, it's as if the story was broken to, okay, we could do this if we uh, make this Potter film a a character piece, a character examination of Harry, and that will push the plot forward. 
And then they didn't actually do that when they wrote the script. So it has just some, it has the beats and just beats, then some stuff between the beats. And that's it. Like, why are we here all of a sudden? It's just, it's just odd. (laughs) Why does Arthur look like he's in a friggin' Terry Gilliam movie all of a sudden? (laughs) Why is he drunk? Those jokes aside, I do really appreciate this scene. It, it's wonderful to see how happy Hermione is with the sweater gifts. Yeah. Which, it's a, it's a nice little bit of character building because we never see Hermione's family, and they, they kind of give you the sense that they're not super important to her. I mean, in one point, she actually does erase her memory of herself from them. Like, and she does this and moves on pretty quickly. <laughs> So you get, in my mind, the sense that she has a family that's perfunctory. They do the family stuff they need to, but it's not very warm. Or is this situation the opposite, where it's a family that's really into everything. You get homemade gifts, and she's totally into that. Even here, she's giving Ron a hard time for not wanting to wear his homemade sweater. Yeah, the the Potter series has an interesting examination of different levels of uh, family. Yeah. I can understand. They, they can't get into all those other guys, but yeah. it'd be kind but of it's weird interesting to just still there. Nice talking about her family. Yeah. Uh, speaking of good design, since we, we've talked a lot about not liking the room requirement, I love this room. Just having a family tree painted across the entire thing, as impractical as it is, makes perfect sense in the wizard world we've been presented. I want this for my house so badly. It's it's the worst family tree ever, but also the most beautiful. I come in here and cry sometimes, Harry. As a doll. <laughs> my ancestors laugh. The worst part was they put out all of those pictures by just jabbing cigarettes into the wall, so his family got cancer by snubbing him. <laughs> Hey, Helena Bottom Carter. <laughs> Hello, it's, I'm in your wall. It's so funny to me that that's how she's introduced, because she's a name. <laughs> it's always weird when name actors are introduced offhand like that in movies like this. <laughs> Do not see. Also, going, going back to the idea of the importance of blood family versus adoptive family, and how sometimes... The people meet along the way can be more family than blood family. This yeah. room is like the perfect encapsulation of it. You've got Sirius standing in his room being forced to remember his whole family, even though they blacked him out and forcibly removed him from the tree because he wasn't like them. While talking to Harry about, you know, all the order stuff, the people he's adopted as his makeshift family. I think it's extremely telling Whenever you look at the history of fiction, how you can see such a very clear shift in the 20th century where stories go from being aggressively about blood family to being about surrogate family. And that shift seems to be right around the big social revolution of the 60s and 70s. That's pretty much where Pretty much what brought what Silver and Bronze Age comic books were all about. And Those darn orphans getting superpowers. That's pretty much what every 
big franchise is about, especially uh, from the past uh, 20 years, it's all about surrogate families. Or especially in uh, old fantasy literature. You know, all those stories are essentially about putting together a group that becomes your surrogate family. It's always uh, very strongly woven into uh, fantasy. These are my X-Men. <laughs> Harry, we've had enough time talking about the plots and family and theme. We have to do something different. <clears throat> to a montage! <laughs> yeah. I mean, if my memory serves right, we, we spend all this time out of the school inside of Grimwald Place and the Christmas stuff, and then we go back to school, and then don't we, like, immediately leave again to, like, go visit Hagrid's hut or something? I think so. So, Mike, to, to give you an idea of how much is cut from this, Order of the Phoenix is the big serious black book. Who's serious black? <laughs> That's the book where you actually get to know Sirius, and it's like a big buddy story between Harry and, and Sirius. You know, what uh, they definitely needed to do to sell Gary Oldman in this film. Yeah. Oh, that thing that was promised at the uh, end of Azkaban? Yeah. Azkaban, make, like, that was one of my big revelations in going back and reading the books, is all of the weird stuff about Sirius in Azkaban they don't abandon that like the movies do. Like, Sirius is just kind of crazy for the rest of the series, <laughs> and that becomes a major plot point. Uh, that becomes like a big thing that drives kind of a wedge between Harry and Sirius in Order of the Phoenix is Sirius is really thirsty for revenge and just wants Harry to fuck up Umbridge <laughs> and immediately go after uh, Voldemort and Harry doesn't want to escalate things that quickly and Sirius is super disappointed and thinks that you know he's a like he's betraying the memory of James by not being more impulsive like really interesting character stuff that would have been a better use of the movie's time than here's Hagrid's giant brother here's more of Umbridge being terrible Wop is like in this movie for Oh, 30 seconds or something? It's, For it's, no reason. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a weird thing to be like, no, that we got to get in. I wonder if that was one of those deals where JK read the script and she's like, no, no, no. Got to have the guap. It's weird because there's so much in order in a Half-Blood Prince that's just kind of there because as a movie and a book, it's just kind of all set up for the finale. You couldn't have thrown them in there. <laughs> giving Hagrid something to do. No, that was on his face. <laughs> That's just extra flavor. That sweat is just salt. Yeah, that, that is how dirty Hagrid is. He's more disgusting than raw meat. <laughs> I'm not recommending anyone eat Hagrid. <laughs> well, you should. He's delicious. It would take <laughs> such a long time. What, what do you mean? To cook Hagrid? Like, are you talking rotisserie style? Also, Hagrid was just being literal there. There was a storm coming. <laughs> He's not very smart. Enter the Harley Quinn of Harry Potter. 
character who just should have been the main character of this film, let's be honest. It is weird when you think in retrospect, Bellatrix is the character who has stakes and does shit and is the arch nemesis of Neville and kills Sirius Black. We're just meeting her an hour and a half into the movie. <laughs> I think she's not really in the series that much until... Yeah. She has uh, presence. But definitely I, I presence. Back in high school, I had a, a German teacher who was super into Harry Potter, but the books. And you would ask him about the movies, because it's very strange to hear someone say they hate the movies, but really love the books. Normally, they're, they're kind of mad about parts in the movies, but they get along with them. This guy was anti-movie. And I had to ask him about it. And he said one of the things that really turned him off from the whole thing was Bellatrix. Like, the, the representation here did not fit with his interpretation from the books in any way whatsoever. And it was just so distracting from him that she was just out and out directly evil crazy that he couldn't stand it. And it literally ruined the films for him. <laughs> Bellatrix is much more feral than uh, she is in the books. I think they were just really in love with crazy Sirius from Azkaban and just wanted to keep that aesthetic around, <laughs> which I understand. And then Bonham Carter just going fucking nuts out. End up writing to that. Oh, looking at the conspiracy wall makes me sad, Harry. I didn't do it. Time for my backstory, finally. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe would have worked a little bit better if they said this in the last film with the whole Cruciatus curse. But they expect us to watch this entire series, so they can plant that stuff several movies in the past and then still have it resonate later. Yeah, I will say that does work. Much, much better watching these movies all together. Like, yeah. like if you watch the Harry Potter series, like it's a season of a TV show that comes across as brilliant seating. Even though it's just, it's mostly just them kind of fucking up. You have to remember sort of work out. I think that's the trick with it. Like several years between movies, like one or two years, depending it could be very easy to forget that happened. But if you're watching these on ABC Family, there's a good chance you'll probably watch these back-to-back -back as a doubleheader, and then it works great. Also, I'm such a big fan of good guy Wormtail in the background. Like, woo <laughs> I didn't do anything. Mad Eye is fun, too, because you can't tell if he's a magic picture or someone drew him in. He doesn't move. <laughs> he is far too hard-ass to be animated through magic. <laughs> this is all terrifying <laughs> summon your familiars we have witchcraft to practice in the woods meanwhile Luna's just so high man <laughs> oh no one else is in this room with her <laughs> this whole I film has been her montage that was an amazing yeah, oh. last minute reveal for the Harry Potter series. Luna's just tripping out in her bedroom. Magic doesn't exist. None of these people are real. It's Neville's parents locked away in the insane asylum. <laughs> this is all in a snow globe. Oh! Magic Rosebud. Oh, maybe we should get out of here, guys. It appears we're getting closer to the third act. 
<laughs> this thing goes into hyperdrive from this point. Come on, you can take her. <laughs> well, this movie, the, the the structure of uh, into the third act of this movie from like this point on, pretty much feels like this script was written in about a weekend, and it was due Monday nine a.m. and it's ah fuck, it's seven a.m. It takes me an hour to get to the studio. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of L.A. traffic factoring into the third act of the <laughs> So Dumbledore is kind of a, a jerk throughout the movie, uh, but he does still get the coolest scenes to make up for it, at least. He does. Like this, this totally sweet exit. You're like, all right, well, he can he can yell at students all he wants and be cold and calculating. He gets to fly away. Just Dumbledore gets out, to be so pimp. We get action much. Dumbledore in this movie. Oh uh, yeah. Uh, so I love this horrible, horrible man to Umbridge's left. <laughs> Who thinks I think he's like the main villain in the picture or something? Doesn't he look like? <laughs> Doesn't he look like he's about to murder somebody while inquiring the status of the rocket? Yes. <laughs> or say, D -d -d go, Dad, go. He is chip-shrecking so hard right now. I had to look that up and make sure that wasn't Greyback. Like, <laughs> okay, that character's totally the werewolf dude who shows up later, right? Wait, no. <laughs> God, he's just waiting to transform into Mr. Hyde. <laughs> Do I have any lines now? No? How about now? Okay. Yet I still remember Kingsley Shacklebolt. That's the thing. <laughs> That's how cool he looks. Speaking of things that are inferred in this movie, it's fascinating to watch that scene and think, unsaid, there is... A Weasley restraining Harry and a member, an undercover member of the Order of the Phoenix, allowing Dumbledore to escape. <laughs> I swear, I didn't realize until rewatching this uh, just last week. Oh yeah, Percy's in this because he's part of the Ministry now. Mm. They don't go into that at all. Yeah, no, it's not even mentioned really. Either. That's a weird moment of filming pizzazz where the camera drifts down through the tower over to Filch. Yeah, there's a lot of odd crane usage that I don't understand. Very... It feels like someone who's directed a lot of TV having budget. Every it's it's strange because there's a handful of them in the movie and they're never really that close to each other and I don't see them having a lot of point. They look cool. They do look cool. They just they're so far apart and don't fit the style of the rest of the picture, so it's almost off-putting. Yeah. Going back to what Jamie said before about the movie being claustrophobic, all of a sudden we have this long, drawn-out pan or pull-in <laughs> from the top of the tower to give you the sense of the vertical height of this place. Like, that doesn't quite work with all the constrictions you're trying to imply with, you know, the overbearing school system. Yeah, so that's kind of the re like I always assume that's the reason the room of a requirement is supposed to look huge is to uh, make it feel like visually like a safe haven away from all the claustrophobic stuff and yeah, and then there's just a giant room here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
even the proclamations in the book there's something like 20 in the movie there's hundreds everything gets blown up in the film version which it makes sense this is the film version they can do things differently it's different medium different ways to communicate but in that case i think they would have been better off if they were working with a smaller space to stress the size of the proclamations yeah rather than just throw thousands of them up there for comedy effect Yes, I've noticed scale is something Yates had to learn very quickly with these movies. Other hand, I love what he's doing with this bridge. Oh, same. I mean, the bridge has been around since like the third movie, but I, I love all these shots that show it's crooked as hell. And going back to the claustrophobia, I like I love how he manages to film the bridge as if it's uh, crushing them. Yeah. Harry's old moping bridge. Oh, that's fucking thing. Yep. I didn't have any notes written for it. I was just like, okay, well, whatever. I guess we're in the forest now. We got some plot to pretend to care about. Oh, we get to reprise the city, the uh, shitty CGI from uh, Sorcerer's Stone. <laughs> <laughs> My only note for this scene is, oh, thank God they made time for this giant subplot. <laughs> Why do the centaurs look so bad? They're horse people. Is that that hard to render? Why don't they just hire some actual fucking centaurs? What do they have to do? Get drunk in a oh. cave? We've all seen Hercules. Okay, I'm pretty sure when you're filming centaurs in movies, all you have to do is just get some green duct tape and tape a man to a horse. And then you just <laughs> let the tech wizards take care of that extra bit of person. Oh, his nose. Giants are terrifying. God, and he just isn't there at all. He's got the consumption. I love how utterly baffling this is in the context of the movie, because all Hagrid tells the audience is, yeah, I went to talk to some giants, and whenever I came back, I found my long-lost brother that my mom shit out. What? <laughs> what, what do those two things have to do with each other? Yeah, it's such a conspiratorial plot, too, because Hagrid disappears, and everyone's like, I guess he's just gone. Umbridge interviews him, and you get the sense he was off doing chores for Dumbledore, something secret for the Order. And uh, now he just, he was visiting family, and now he's got this giant in the forest he's hiding. Which shouldn't matter, he's already, like, hiding Aragog over there, and that guy killed a dude inside the school. Aragog's definitely wanted for at least <laughs> one murder. And tried to kill Harry and Ron that time, and Hagrid did nothing. Oh, yeah. That's that's true. Do you think Harry ever went to Hagrid and was like, bruh, you gotta talk to your spider pals. Look, I know you like Aragog. Hell, I love Aragog, too. We all love Aragog, but one of these days, the wizard police is going to knock on your door at 2 a.m. with a search warrant. I mean, Ron's been scarred for life. He was already afraid of spiders, and he got attacked by gigantic tarantulas. Thousands of them. I don't... Yeah, I don't think about this. This whole forest has to be crawling with man-sized tarantulas. Because we can, saw so can, many of them. I don't can like we this not? anymore. Can we not? We've, we're so far away from that. I don't want to relive that. <laughs> Look That's at the giant play with the ringy bell. That's my feeling on this entire sequence. Uh, can we not? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, Hermione gets a nice moment, but you could really just lift Hagrid out of this movie completely. 
Especially since Umbridge gets taken out by Groppy, but in the same sequence, she's attacked by the centaur, so it doesn't matter. Right. Uh, yeah. The so, movies look, often feel like they're struggling to find uses for these amazing actors they have. So it's like, fuck, what are we going to do? Give Hagrid something. Or here, oh, thank God, we finally have something for Snape to do that's important. Because it's been a while since Snape's actually done something besides say a line in a cool way. I just want to say, I love how Snape is so arch. He just trolled first movie Harry Potter again. <laughs> the weakest version of you is never safe from me, Potter. <laughs> the way he charges at the chair. He can't even just stand across the room and say his point. He has to sneak up on you. Speaking of, like, reveals this movie sort of just rolls over, Harry's father being a dick. You mean the most important scene in all of Harry Potter that lasts ten seconds. <laughs> and is never addressed. And, but then, context, that scene is an entire chapter <laughs> in that book. Like, you just hang out with teenage Snape and Lily Potter for a while. It's funny that Snape has a lot of legitimate points in this tirade, but because of Snape saying them like an a-hole, you definitely don't side with them or learn anything. Great lesson in life. Just say things nicer. You're probably right, but the way you talk makes everyone not want to listen to you in any way. God, I feel like a Sisters of Mercy song should be playing over this entire sequence. <laughs> <laughs> they actually went the distance to have Snape have toilet paper on his shoe. Wizard toilet paper. Does that happen to anyone in real life? I've never seen someone walking around out of a bathroom with toilet paper stuck to their shoe. I would like to know where that trope comes from. Right? There was I like, feel like one it's old school. Yeah, there's one I old school the movie precedent. producer. Yeah, something. This plot <laughs> is Garfield, over. Uh, Can you remember this plot from 40 minutes ago when it was introduced and we're only just getting back to it? With those two scenes? Of all the montages, this is the one that needed it. I could have watched an entire movie that's just Snape training Harry Potter against his will. There Most was such interesting fodder goddamn for... thing in the story. Yeah, such fodder for introspection, and nah, we're, it's done. Also, let's point out one thing here. Every time Harry Potter learns a new spell, he immediately has to test it out on other people. Like, in this one, Snape's doing the spell to get into his mind. Harry figures it out and then immediately pushes it on Snape. Like, God damn it, Harry, you have to stop. Half-Blood Prince, he does the same thing with that cutting spell on Malfoy. He's got he's to stop using people as guinea pigs. Harry is a monster. <laughs> so I just want to say Fred and George being kind to a crying child is the most beautiful thing in the world. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise time. I think this is a time jump. I mean, it feels like it was just Christmas, but now they're taking the end of the year exam. So I never know where I am in this movie. Spring yeah, is, this movie I says think... fuck it with that so quickly. Yeah, this is what really throws me off, because this is, everything is just chugging along from this point. The Weasleys fuck up the exams. Harry's like, oh no, we have to steal a thing that we didn't really care about until now. They gather up the troops, they have a wizard battle, and movie. Yeah, it is really fucked up how they're like, 
oh no, the movie has a MacGuffin all of a sudden. Yeah. Right? Yeah, the film's like it's just a series of vignettes, essentially. Like, it's so fucking strange to me. Snape is kind of putting the idea in Harry's head, but I don't know. Did I say Snape? I'm sorry. Voldemort's putting the idea in Harry's head that there's something uh-huh. he needs. But I don't think it's pushed hard enough, and the montages are so stylized, you're not paying attention to the message. And it's been so long since we've had the we can't tell Harry what Voldemort needs thing. Yeah. We've just forgotten about it. But on the plus side, this scene's a lot of fun. If I were ever in a good school, this is how I wish I would have done it, with crazy fireworks and stolen brooms. I like to lose out forever. I like to think that Fred and George are like 23. They're just like Van (laughs) Wilder. They've been in school forever. This is way, way less impressive. (laughs) Poor Filch. He has to clean up Uh, this shit. He doesn't even have magic to do it. You think Filch has ever known the touch of a woman? He has a cat. That's good enough. His cat used to be a woman. <laughs> we learned that actually in Fantastic Beast Nine. <laughs> All of the animals were once people. <laughs> That's the biggest dark secret of the Harry Potter film universe. There are no animals, only people that have been hideously transformed. To, and in a weird that twist, each time Mag- you eat a hamburger. And in a weird twist, McGonagall was a cat turned into a woman. She was the one animal. Okay, is that going to be the big reveal in the final movie? Newt Scamander becomes Hedwig? Newt Scamander was actually a Newt all along. But also Hedwig. Another personal story. We get that little moment with Flitwick where he just kind of like cheers when no one's looking at him. Back in college, uh, there were student protests about the way the government was stripping money away from the university system. Hey, there he goes. Uh, And so naturally, all the teachers were pissed because they were like, forcing teachers to take days off where they weren't paid. They were taking millions of dollars away from the university so they could finance a new arena for the Milwaukee Bucks, which everyone in Wisconsin is pretty blasé about. So a lot of teachers were giving students the option to skip class and go to the protests and not counting attendance. We had one like hardline teacher who definitely like couldn't let us skip to go to the protest. She said she was going to take attendance, but she was really sorry about it. She just had to play by the rules. Anyways, after her class was done, we all go to the protest. Someone's standing up giving a very passionate speech. And I saw her in the corner do that exact same Flitwick movement where she's like a little cheer and made sure no one was watching her when she did it. <laughs> and it was adorable. That is great. The, the best cheers are the ones that are just for you. I love how often <laughs> you have school stories that relate to the Harry Potter film we're watching. It's relatable. I'm trying to make myself seem human. Hey. <laughs> like that's why you connect to these movies so much. You're just Harry Potter. The University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire is not much of a Hogwarts, but uh, it has its charms. I feel like I did live in the Shrieking Shack, though. <laughs> you really did. Oh, God. If anyone wants to help me out, Derp House right now is for sale for, like, $175,000. Uh... If you want to give me $200,000 so I can buy that place and try to remove some of the mold, we could have a hell of a party house. <laughs> okay, two Ball things. House. One, I like the idea of a Kickstarter for Cody buying a dirt house. <laughs> two, I like how the end of all that is, 
and then we have a house to party in. Oh, I wouldn't <laughs> want to live there. there. You would get the homeless people in that neighborhood are fucking screwed. Homeless people we have don't a... live in Eau Claire. They would freeze to death. It's like zero <laughs> degrees there for half the year. That is the most decadent thing in the world, having a house exclusively for parties. Okay, you so never have to clean it. I have to get away from Harry Potter because this is an idea that stuck with me for years. Imagine you have an empty house that's shitty. You could have the world's greatest paintball arena. Oh my god, that would be awesome. Right? That, Just that a, would be amazing, yeah. This has been an idea that's haunted me for years because it'll never happen. Imagine yeah. your high school, if it like went out of business, they shut it down, they didn't have enough tax dollars, and they just emptied the place out, the students went to somewhere else, and they just left it abandoned, and you snuck in with a bunch of friends and played paintball in your high school. Oh, so it just becomes the, the Russo episodes of Community? Yes. Imagine how cool that would be! See, all I'm thinking is the house from uh, Fight Club. <laughs> with with the newspapers everywhere, but paintball. Yeah. Oh God. Why are wizard kids doing that? They could like actually cast spells that wouldn't permanently destroy things. They could have great paintball fights in Hogwarts. <laughs> Harry is also the worst code talker in the world. Do not seek the treasure. <laughs> <laughs> I like how because like everything else in this movie, this plot point relies on things being inferred. You can interpret that as Snape just did nothing. <laughs> I mean, he does actually contact everybody else. You just forget about it by the time that it happens because it's supposed to be a last second reveal that everyone's there. But it's not stated. So you could make the argument. They just showed up because people who work in the ministry are part of the Order of the Phoenix and oh, a yeah. wizard fight was happening. Yeah, there. I mean, even hell, one of these guys could have like secretly sent a Hedwig message or something. Just There's a lot of ways around it. Oh, that's how Let's I honestly did took like. it the first time I ever watched this movie. Yeah. <laughs> Which is frustrating because that's supposed to be a character moment for Snape that ties in with the whole bullying subplot is... He still cares about duty enough to actually call the Order of the Phoenix. Oh, God, he's loose. God, Umbridge, get some lackeys. Take out a couple of, like, the stupid students from Slytherin that are, like, backing you up on your Inquisitor gang. This was very weird that Umbridge comes out here by herself in this weird lead-into-the-woods thing. Yeah. This whole thing is clunky. It's worse in the books, because don't they imply, like, the, the centaurs take her off into the woods and, like, violate her? I don't think she's violated, but... They're yeah, centaurs. It is terrifying. There's dark implications. I think the book actually makes it worse than the movie version, where they just, like, apparently drag her into the woods and give her a scolding. Ah. We're not well adapted to force, but we live here. It's it's like I'm playing Shadow of the Colossus all of a sudden. <laughs> ah, who gave them bows? <laughs> who invented so, bows and gave them the centaurs? To go back to Star Wars and Harry Potter, and now they resort to talking about fascism. In Star Wars, it's always implied that it's just human beings that are in the Empire. Like, you never really see any aliens, except for maybe, like, some mercenaries that get hired. And they seem untrustworthy. In Harry Potter, it's explicitly stated that the bad guys are 
pretty much not into anything that's not human. Like they, they don't like non-magical humans, and they don't like magical critters. It's just got to be magic people. Yeah. Which is a weird middle ground because even the good wizards, as we mentioned before, aren't great to magical critters at all. Like <laughs> the centaurs are forced to live in the forest, and they don't have a good relationship with the humans. Uh, the house elves, not really shown in the movie, are used as slave labor. Yeah, the magical world well, the- is really horrible and fucked up, and I, I, in some ways, it's like that's something that's broken about it. But I also appreciate that because that's it's Hermione's actually- whole thing. Yeah, and it creates a more honest reflection of the actual world against the magical world. Yeah, the wizarding world is just as fucked up and wrong as the normal book world. (laughs) Goodbye, plot point. We'll miss you. It does just look like they're leaving her to die. (laughs) Essentially, they are. Harry, I'm wrong. I'm being we, helpful we, in this movie. Yes, we've come <laughs> for the third act. <laughs> Someone said something nice to me, but it was backhanded. I'm Ron Weasley. No one loves me. It's 825. I'm stuck in traffic six blocks from Warner, the Warner Brothers lots. Can I just shout the, the script to you over the phone? I can. This man is in the car writing. The script is on a steering wheel, and somewhere in someone's Dodge Durango on full volume in the Hall of the Mountain King is just playing as they're slowly going <laughs> through traffic. Now, Michael, I, I, I quite enjoy the um, the third act here, but I do think we should lose the scene where Voldemort and Harry lay next to each other on the ground and have a confrontation. <laughs> Okay, so they've established in the movie that Destrals are invisible to people who have not experienced horrible loss. So everyone else is just doing the Wonder Woman invisible jet thing in their mind, except for Harry and Luna. Ron is actually making uh, plane noises right now. (laughs) This would be the worst. Imagine you're just flying above a city and you can't see what you're flying on. You don't even know, like, where the handles are. So if you have to, like, scratch your nose, you might not be able to find your handhold again. Uh, it's actually why you don't see Cho in the third act. She, she didn't make her it. death. Imagine, though, what a great ride that would be at, like, Universal Studios. They basically just put you in a harness and, like, pretend you're on a Thestral, and they fly you over London. Mm-hmm. It's so cheap. <laughs> also, going back a second, I all I can think of now, Mike is baby Voldemort entering the frame in a wheelchair and saying, Hello, Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Why can't I be you? (laughs) And what I love is everyone listening to this doesn't remember the Green Lantern film at all. It's fine. It's fine. You don't have to revisit. Those fools who have foolishly deleted that from their memory. I, it, no, it, I mean, it's probably great. If you go back and watch Green Lantern, you can immediately jump to watching Deadpool 2 and be like, I appreciate this ending a lot more now. <laughs> it's like I a set, like... It, this entire movie that's a setup for a joke in another movie 10 years later. <laughs> like Blade Trinity. <laughs> Zing. I feel like the three of us are like uh, Mike from It. Like, we're the lighthouse keepers. <laughs> 
It's our burden to remember things like Green Lantern. Oh, God. Well, like, time to go kill myself in a bathtub. You need watchdogs like us to to warn film of making previous mistakes. <laughs> also, I'm oh, just imagining God. Stan in a bathtub with Green Lantern written on the walls <laughs> and his wife reacting in an over-the-top manner. Mark Strong, why? Credits. Back to Harry Potter. No. This is... Okay. Done. This is such... Uh, I have mixed feelings here about this whole setting. One, visually it's very distinct that they have all the prophecies, glowing orbs, just helter-skelter for miles in a dark room. On the other hand, I feel like, what a weird thing. It goes along with the wizard impracticality design principle, but the nitpicker in me is just like, why would they ever put these in magic balls? Can't they just write them down? Is it important they hear like the timber of the voice saying it? Yes, I like the crystal ball aspect. I, I think if the MacGuffin wasn't completely just... All right. What? Yeah, uh, if it... You could literally break this and then Voldemort can never get what he wants. Yeah, so it just it's not it doesn't even a have any prophecy. kind of focus. Yeah. It's very much a fortune cookie kind of prophecy. It's like, goddamn, that was it? That's like, okay. And it's information that we know Voldemort already knows because Snape told him and that's why he killed the Potters. So... <laughs> Even in the book, it's really not explained why the fuck Voldemort needs this. Uh, if you're a real Harry Potter fan, not like us pretenders, could you please send us a long message to explain this so I don't have to search through the Harry Potter wiki? Oh, please hey. help us enjoy this oh, plot point. <laughs> <laughs> I Okay, and the frustrating thing is, I could give two shits less as long as the set piece around it is engaging. But I am totally not into the whole fight scene that happens here. To make the room dark and spooky, it really just feels like an incomplete effect, like they forgot to add a background somewhere. And the actual fighting, all of a sudden, all of the evil wizards can just fly and morph around wherever they want. But when they're hit, they move it in perfect, like, 90-degree angles so they don't smash into any of the shelves, so they don't ruin the big collapse at the end. It's it's all built too carefully, and it none of it feels right. Yeah. Even though they're not... Ah, there's so much that bugs me about it. Even though they're trying to protect Harry, all the other wizards should be fair game for death. And yet everyone's being treated with baby gloves. And the dark wizards are, like, literally laughing as they're running around. It just... Ugh. It feels like in Game of Thrones, we're like, we need a sword fight here to help fill out the plot. Just throw some action at the screen. It's fine. It's good from a performance standpoint when you focus on all the actors. But everything up until the Dumbledore v. Voldemort battle. Because even when the even when the Order shows up, none of the action feels all that important or well-staged. It's just kind of just there for action yes. purposes. Yeah. The Death Eater costumes are way cooler right this time. Oh, I think last yeah. time we saw them, they had black hoods like, you know, the KKK, but magic. This works better. I, I really like the masks. Haha! <laughs> -ha, punch. Wizard punch. Wizard Plus punch. how Lucius takes off his mask is so goddamn fucking arch. <laughs> uh, so in my notes, I made a typo instead of writing Lucius, I wrote Luscious, 
and I'm, that's just going to stick <laughs> yeah. in my head forever now. When I imagine him taking off that mask and his luxurious hair. Uh, oh, he's a luscious Malfoy, all right. Luscious Malfoy. I wouldn't be surprised if someone got that name in the Harry Potter universe. They're they're pretty on the nose for some of these names. I'll get you, Peter Pan. <laughs> also, I feel like I've read a, a slash fic in the early 2000s called Luscious Malfoy. Oh, how did we do this? I don't know. Magic. It just feels like they're in a video game. God damn it, Ginny, what are you doing? You it feels like they're running all. around the um the shelves in the loading room in the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How oh god, try and imagine get a prophecy off the top shelf. How long do you think they keep them before they throw them out? Like if there's a prophecy about someone from like eighteen hundred who's been dead for two hundred years, and like, well, this doesn't apply anymore. It's talking about the invention to I don't know, the, the cotton gin. <laughs> like, once again, also, going no, back to the scale. all of those time turners. <laughs> this is why they should write these things down or make stronger globes. Retcons. Um, once again, so I think it's just, it's a problem of scale. Why is it happening? I know it's because it's the Potter universe. Everything has to be, you know, magnificently gigantic. But it's so big that it it just engulfs the scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is the stupidest sounding thing I will ever say, but it's so big, it's small. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what are those paradoxes? That's that's what I tell people about my dick. Uh, I just apologize. <laughs> <laughs> There's no charade. I'm just like, this is unfortunately what we have to work with. Look, I'm not happy about this either. <laughs> So I'm just your bank teller. <laughs> now, do you want the free toaster or not? Yes. Oh, uh, magic, magic, magic. Also, uh, I, I love the Stargate that's in this scene for no reason. Uh, I know. It's this entire really with Voldemort and picked up literally any other prophecy and just carried it with him. <laughs> And they're like, give us the props. You'd be like, yeah, all right, here you go. It's one about dodgeball. <laughs> Surprisingly, the movie and not, uh, in my mind, dodgeball, the film actually does still get made in the Harry Potter universe. They have the same muggle movies. Okay. Besides Harry Potter, there's no Harry Potter movies in the Harry Potter movie universe. That we know of. Well, no, that gets silly and confusing. So, I love how... Uh, in the book, that soul gate is there, so like specifically, so Sirius's soul goes into it, and they can't resurrect him using any of the bullshit Harry Potter means, like portraits. <laughs> in the movie, it's there just because it's there. It, it, it's weird because it kind of tricks the audience into feeling like that's setting up something important. Because why else would it be there? But I assume no, the ministry was built around this thing because it's horrible magic. We just have a soul gate. Everyone's too afraid to go in it, so we built this bunker around it. So like people just walk into it by accident. Yeah. Quick, throw all the prophecies in there. <laughs> Here you go. There's your fortune cookie. Now he's so happy. 
There, this thing I hold means nothing. Wizard punch! Oh, I should have seen that punch coming. It'd be awesome if he just pulled out a gun and just shot Lucius <laughs> in the fucking face. Oh no, it broke. I'm I... glad I'm the one who looks like mom, you son of a bitch. Okay, another... Boy. I swear, things improved for me after this movie. But this is my, my least favorite Potter. Uh, and two, I, I don't like the fight choreography in this scene either. No, in a, it's, in a second, it's sloppy. Like, once this finishes, we get like a weird shaky cam shot of Harry running down the hall, which is very engaging. And then we get a very well-executed wizard fight. It almost feels like a second unit took care of this, which I'm sure they didn't. But a lot of the action feels like maybe they kind of took over or they had so much previs, they just had to leave things certain ways. Yeah. I don't know. Even, even the dueling, there's a lot of parts of it where it just doesn't quite feel right or characters standing around doing nothing. I do like um, Harry and Sirius uh, battling side by side, but it's also not on screen for long enough. It's like a very quick, cool shot, and then we move on. Yeah. We just... Ah, God. Hey, the order's here. They each get, like, one cool moment. is done. Oh, yeah, I know it's unfair to compare it to a movie that came out uh, over a decade later, but could you imagine this scene shot like the... Ray and Kylo Ren throne battle in The Last Jedi. Oh, man. Oh, God, yeah. That'd have been dope. The internet would have had so much fun adding music to it. <laughs> Turn down for what? Oh, hey, Lupin. Yeah, and just, it's, it's awkward timing, too, because we see that spell happen, we go into this slow-mo thing, Harry having this super raw emotional response, and then Bellatrix is like, uh, let me walk away slowly. Instead of killing, like, eight other people with this unforgivable curse I don't have a problem using. Laters. By, by the way, that was my cousin. <laughs> it does give her that nice little reaction there where she almost looks sad for a second, then she gets the evil sneer. That's an interesting, complex emotion. Also, look at this. You can tell it's handheld. The guy's running down the hall with them. It feels very raw compared to the overly glossy tracking shot of the wizards flying around the combat arena. Yeah. That and definitely it, it, was, that was previsioned. Like, they, they knew they had to do it as an effect shot, so they had to map everything around that, and it feels very sterile. Running down the hallway chasing after Harry, even though it's only, like, five seconds of footage, is amazing. That feels so much more like you're in the moment, and you can feel the rage that Harry has, the yeah, shake of the camera, emotion. which is, yeah, it's, it's so unusual for Harry Potter, too, to have a camera motion like that. And it just fits so much goddamn better, and it's weird that there's a snap like that, that everything's shitty for five minutes, and then, oh, yeah, now it's fine. Did Harry throw his wand at Voldemort? <laughs> he thought it was a knife. <laughs> oh, shit, it's on. Ooh. Calling a snake man Tom amuses me. <laughs> and at least you can immediately count on fines to just be delightful. <laughs> I, too, it carries on. Okay, so in the last movie, when they had the graveyard duel, he forces Harry to do the, the bow. But he kind of does this move, too, right before he fights Dumbledore and does, like, the cheap surprise attack. He does that little wand curl, and he puts his hand in front of him. It's like the least courteous bow out there, but he still kind of follows decorum. <laughs> he believes in the old ways, Cody. 
And the, the attention to detail in the fight is is great here. We have less people, so it's more tight. Uh, but you get to see all the stuff Dumbledore is doing to do this incredible magic, but also protect Harry. It is don't weird. Lose any of that. It's weird to think this is the time we get to see Dumbledore fight. To me, this is this is like the big action climax of the entire series. There's nothing else oh, that yeah. can stand up to this in levels of oh shit, magic action. This is very strange considering it's movie five of eight. Yeah, um, and it's this movie. It's the best. It's hands down the best action scene. It's the best representation of what a magic battle should be. This is honestly what we all signed up for when we heard about Harry Potter. Like he learns magic at a school. Does he oh, get yeah. to fight magic Nazis in like a gigantic <laughs> epic fight where they're making glass spheres that are ten stories tall? Is no? Ray finds a factor. <laughs> Honestly, as much as I have an undying love for the original Lord of the Rings trilogy, this is what I always wanted to see Gandalf do. Oh, that'd be but cool. yeah, that always bothered me so much when Jackson would say, "Well, I don't like old men shooting lightning out of their fingertips," because no, that's what fantasy's about: old men shooting lightning from their fingertips. <laughs> Well, the interpretation cool. I'd always had was that Gandalf just didn't have that style. And also wizards in the Lord of the Rings universe are immensely powerful, but as influencers instead of, like, direct attack guys. There's a fuck ton of wizard magic uh, in the books. Jackson just didn't really care for that. More flashbacks, please. Oh. You gotta give it to Radcliffe here. This is you're on the ground covered in sawdust, and you have to pretend a snake man is possessing you, but you're going to fight back with the wholesomeness of your character and the love for your adopted family. It's a hard scene to pull off, but he does a wonderful job selling it and not making it look ridiculous. The, the the complexities Radcliffe has to go through in the third act of this movie alone, not even speak of the rest of the film, are fucking incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I love the music video shots of Voldemort. I I why is that in this fucking movie? Yeah. Also, you know it's a Goldberg script. He's on the fucking floor. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot. That this technically does happen. <laughs> God, I'm so envious of the actors playing James and Lily Potter because they get royalties forever for being in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> They were in a picture once, too. They probably had to film for, like, a day and a half. I had to pretend to love that boy. So, god damn, is Voldemort in a hoodie the funniest thing in the world? <laughs> I'm chillaxing. I feel a little bad, because in that scene, Dan Radcliffe is doing everything he can, and they're asking Nicholas Hooper's score to do a lot of work to carry the scene as well. Especially with like kind of the stylized editing happening. Like you need that through line to keep you anchored. And I don't know it's quite up to the task. I feel like I should be having a much stronger emotional reaction. But yeah. something about the music doesn't quite kick me over the edge. 
the, the score, I, I couldn't tell you what the score of this movie was. Yeah. yeah. Here's a question. To either of you, does it come across in that scene that Harry is using the occlumency that Snape taught him? Um, it looks like there's some pushback. I don't think the call out strong enough that he's... I guess it's weird because they didn't make it a great visual thing to show that Harry's resisting so much other than faster flash forwards, backs. Yeah. If it maybe been some sort of spell he had to do or like a motion or a wand twirl to signify it, even a cant- incantation would have maybe sold a little more. But I guess that makes the scene too busy. Yeah. If, I don't... The thing is, it's like, I don't really get that impression, but there's a lot of things that are... Sup- the meaning behind uh, certain scenes are still there, even if they're not called out because of just bad writing, quite frankly. So uh, maybe. I will say to the screenplay's credit, I do really appreciate that. Unlike in the source material, you actually do get a moment of fudge looking at Voldemort and saying he's back. That thing that's curiously not in the book at all. Really? <laughs> yeah, it's just, he just shows up and is like, well, witnesses have seen Voldemort, so I guess he's back now. It's like, no, you need that fucking satisfaction. You need the gotcha. You, you need the movie to punch Fudge into the face at that moment. You need, my children were on that beach too. <laughs> exactly. I have nothing to say about this because I've already made fun of that prophecy so many times. <laughs> I, I like how the big reveal is, as it turns out, Voldemort and I have to battle at some point. <laughs> Our destinies are intertwined. <laughs> yeah, it would be really nice if literally any of the other explanations from the scene made it into the movie. <laughs> uh, this is the weakest all is revealed of the entire series. Yeah, I. Boy, it just gets hard. If you look at the source material, it's gigantic. Order of the Phoenix is a huge book, so it's it'd be impossible task to try and distill that into a two-hour movie. There, there's going to be stuff that gets lost. There's always going to be translation issues too, and you got to make your medium work for you. I don't know. They should have just made it a video game. <laughs> I, I still think it would not have been that hard to just have Dumbledore then say, oh yeah, Creature overheard you talking to Sirius, and that's why the third act happened. <laughs> I, I get you don't want uh, the epilogue to the movie just being a noir epilogue where you just show where, where all the machinery behind the movie that was happening without you noticing but in a plot with this much random shit happening, <laughs> that would have uh, alleviated a lot of that. Also, for a movie called The Order of the Phoenix, boy, it would have been really cool to see what the Order was up to throughout the year. I get that doesn't fit in with how Harry Potter films are, because your focus is just the school and the students. But the movie's called The Order of the Phoenix, and we see them for just a handful of scenes. 
what the hell were they doing during that year? They had to be doing some crazy cool stuff, hunting down dark wizards. And right now, um, they're much like Han Solo, not mourning the death of Sirius Black. Yeah, the ending here always throws me off because it's another very upbeat, hey, that was a fun adventure, can't wait for the next one. Although the universe of the story is, hey, oh god, my godfather is, is dead and Voldemort's back and everything is going to be terrible from this point on. Yeah, it's weird how Cedric's death holds more weight than Sirius Black. Yeah, yeah. the ending of I Goblet handled on... the ending of Goblet handled kind of having to end not on a down note, but not rob uh, any emotional urgency from the situation much more deftly than this, which just it just fails completely honestly like it kind of gives up on trying to handle that by just ending as quickly as possible so yeah. there's no weight to the death that happened or it's really any of the events of the movie even the music though is upbeat and chipper and it feels so wrong there needs to be a yeah. little bit of melancholy in there to get across the idea that they're soldiering on which is i mean it's that's implied by their dialogue they definitely aren't saying nope everything's hunky-dory the the music betrays the mood that should be felt here i get it it's harry potter it's supposed to be a big family treat so leaving this movie on a huge down note like that when the films are only going to get more progressively dark would be weird and probably bump people out and turn them away from seeing the next you know couple movies but hmm i really I do not dig what i'm hearing right now in the score Oh, the first time I watched this, when it cut to credits, I was fucking startled. <laughs> yeah, this is... Uh, I'm gonna be honest. This is the reason I stopped watching the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> so after this came out, I remember just thinking to myself, yeah, I kind of think I've seen everything this universe has to offer. I'm just going to sit the rest of the movies out. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I started actually reading the books and got really, really invested in this series again. And eventually uh, saw the others out. And now you're back it... to being angry about the movies. <laughs> well, I just, I, I kind of. Like, that was a little bit of an overreaction at my, on my part, but I, I can imagine a lot of people walking away from this thinking, well, whatever these movies had, they've probably lost it. Which, thankfully, I was very wrong about. Yeah, and I, you know, I've said a lot of problems I have here. This is mostly comparing this to the rest of the franchise. Yeah. I was, I was always there for the midnight premieres on these things. This movie just didn't sit well with me compared to everything else, but it's a necessary link. It do, it's not like it violates everything that's come before it. It fits in. I just think it's a bit of an awkward growth spurt for the series, where they're trying to change tracks, get away from the yearly school adventure, and make it into the larger plot that's going to stretch between several films and it, become a darker thing. It's it's trying to become adult. It's growing up, and it's got acne. Acne. It's it's not a bad film by any stretch, I would say. It's just um, 
It just flails. <laughs> That's a new tagline. They actually have to put on all the posters. It flails. It just flails. You will lose everything. <laughs> <laughs> Including your interest. It's it's just so weird to look at Harry Potter as a whole and think like all of these entries are really strong and really stand out. And then you get to this movie and it's kind of a Percy Jackson film that just happens to be in the Harry Potter canon. <laughs> like it's fine, it's just forgetful. Like it's a stepping stone. It doesn't it doesn't leave an impression, it doesn't do a lot for you. It's when you're watching it, sometimes you can get bored. Like, I definitely get bored whenever I'm watching this film, but he, for the most part, you're enjoying watching something that's Harry Potter. Uh, Harry's story is still great in the movie. There's still a lot of interesting character work, but you just kind of walk away confused, especially once you finish the series and then go back and go, why wasn't all these things that were rolled over more important? And even though I care for Half-Blood Prince less than this, I would still much rather watch Half-Blood Prince compared to Order of the Phoenix. At the very least, Half-Blood Prince does effectively communicate the emotion of loss. Yes. Much, much better than I think what we get here. Very much so. And even stuff like the weird color palette of that movie does give it personality. Of all the Harry Potter movies, this is the only one that has no personality. <laughs> I'm sorry, there's just a sweet guitar riff. <laughs> <laughs> that was odd. <laughs> that's, that's, it's, it's, I got a lot of frustrations about this score. It's tough because you're following in the footsteps of John Williams. Everything that came after him kind of had to be modeled on his groundwork. So it's always going to be hard. You're, you're imitating one of the best out there while still trying to advance it, make it your own. And this goes in directions that do not work for me at all. You should, in my mind, an electric guitar riff has no business being in here with everything else. Yeah. You can do weird stuff. Get some sleigh bells. I don't care. Wind chimes. That's all cool. Electric guitar, nothing about it seems like uh, the instrument you would hear a wizard play. <laughs> Highly inappropriate. I mean, this is disregarding the fact that in the last movie, I think we did see several wizards playing electric guitars. It still doesn't, I don't know, it doesn't work here for me. Don't like it. In my yeah. mind, if the score in these films should feel like something that actual wizards would have composed, if it's something that muggles would be into, it doesn't quite work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we're some progressive rock. <laughs> I do have shit. a double standard because, you know, the, the Nick Cave song we talked about before totally fits somehow. It's a weird left field choice, but I love it and it fits very well for the scene. Well, I think we've um, both talked up and shit on this film enough. <laughs> this part's nice. I like this. I enjoyed the credits. No, no, no. This, this particular bit of music. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to say it's all bad. This one feels more in the vein of what I would expect from a Harry Potter score, even though it's a new take on things. And it's a little bit different. The I don't know what the name for it is. It's like the theme for when they're putting up all the proclamations. So it's some sort of comedy zinger, but I like it. The important thing is the writer of this then made Green Lantern. 
To be fair, like 40 people made Green Lantern. There were so many script writers involved in that. I like contact. the comedy. I just like the comedy of this being sandwiched between contact and Green Lantern in somebody's <laughs> resume. <laughs> like, if he had also written Iron Man 2, that would have made it perfect. Oh, God. Um, that long list of terrible movies aside, um, <laughs> if you've enjoyed this commentary... And uh, would like to check out our past Potter commentaries, would like to listen to our future Potter commentaries, because obviously we, we still got a couple more coming. Or if you'd like to check out anything else from Box Office Pulp, we are at boxofficepulp.blogspot.com. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash boxofficepulppodcast. And, you know, if you like the show, great, subscribe us, let us uh, let us know what your thoughts are, say hello, yell at us for um, anything about this movie, explain why the prophecy is a good plot in this movie, because I'm not buying it. Actually, I hope they don't, because then we'll have to go into the next podcast and be like, guys, we screwed up and led you all astray. We're not going to edit the old one, but now we have to issue a public apology. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. Retraction! <laughs> That's the only way we'll do it, if we can just shout it. <laughs> At the start of the episode. Also, I'm not going to announce what the attraction is for. We're just going to announce there is one. So something we said before was incorrect. It's your job as the listener to find it. <laughs> we'll give you some context clues throughout the episode. I wish this commentary ended abruptly. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. I touched a port key and now I'm in wizard hell. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. meeting will come to order. The Legion of Pulp is now in session. In a moment, iTunes... Yes, Quizmotron? I was wondering, Emperor Palpatine, if I could, perhaps... Box Office Pulp thinks we need a few items to pawn on the black market. Box Office Pulp guy, you have a podcast dedicated to movie analysis. Pinhead, your pleasure puzzles are deadly. Isaac, you've... You've got corn! Corn? What more do you need? How about a nuclear warhead? What? All other supervillains have them. With a nuclear warhead, I should leave all of the podcasts to tear themselves apart with paranoia. Box office pulp wants a magic lasso to hang himself with. Can I get a ship in a bottle kit? I demand more corn. To make my own ship in a bottle. Oh, enough of this. The hell do I look like, Santa Claus? We're wasting valuable time. Right now, my Pope drones are rewriting Apple's code to make our podcast number one on iTunes. Excuse me, Emperor. Quizmotron, what is it? All Quizmotron wants is pants.
a decent pair of pants. Darth Vader wants pants too. Order! Order! Tune in next week at bookpodcastnetwork.wordpress.com. I don't even know how I deal with any of you on a daily basis.